Welcome to the Disney View Podcast. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer. He's a one-time cast member, and he's been to Disney World literally hundreds of times. Listen in as he talks about one of his favorite things, the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, and occasionally beyond the Orlando theme park. And now, here's your host. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, October 1st marks the 30th anniversary of Epcot. And I wanted to take some time and pay homage to the park and what it is and what it was. So on today's podcast, let's take a trip back in history and talk about the design and some of the construction aspects of Epcot. Walt loved the way his WED, and WED standing of course for Walter Elias Disney, his WED engineers, or what he became the Imagineers, worked with uh, industry and worked really well with industry. His innovators had the ideas and were free to create things uh, with an influx of money from these various corporations that they worked with, and the corporations benefited in some way from the creations that these innovators were working on. So you had this sort of synergy that was going on. So as an example, in the 1964 World's Fair, there was a big leap forward in the show design, queuing, and ride engineering that happened because the wet engineers worked with companies to create pavilions, and the company that sponsored them had their name on the side, and many people walked through and associated the success of the pavilion with those sponsors. So there was a sort of a branded success there. So essentially, they were able to draw on the experiences that Disney's Imagineers had acquired in building and construction, and the advanced concept designs that they had come up with. Now, as for the original idea of Epcot, Walt's general plan was to get into the nature of planning a city for tomorrow. He conceived of something called Progress City that would take all of the ideas he could conceive and make them into a collaborative and learning environment so that he could really make something that was sort of innovative and interactive and very different from what you might think of as a city of today, or certainly a city of the 1960s. Disney imagined the city to be a thriving community of about 20,000 residents, where shopping, schools, civil services, and all of the residents' needs would be more or less self-contained within the community itself. Now, if you want to know more about Progress City, I encourage you to check out podcast number 82. In that podcast, I talked with Sam Genoway, and in particular, the model that Malt made of his concept. A portion of that model is still available, and you can see it on the People Mover track when you're over at Disney World, and you go inside and you see the uh, city, Walt's view of the city of the future. That's a portion of the Progress City that Walt had in mind. Now, back to the story. By the time Walt recorded the video explaining his concept, he had rebranded this Progress City into something called EPCOT, which is an acronym for Experimental Prototype Community, or sometimes City of Tomorrow. Now, even Walt made reference to both during that promotional video, so I find it kind of interesting, and it's not really clear which one it's supposed to be. Now, the city was designed to be a radial community, with shopping and commerce being centrally located, and beyond that, the schools and social services that residents would need would make up the second ring, and thus would be closer to the residents themselves, and then the outermost ring would be made up of residential sector, and those living there would have the advantage of being the same distance from everything that they would need. So, as opposed to the urban sprawl that we see today, so Disney envisioned Epcot as a city that would never be completed, as new technology and innovation would keep improving the designs and the lives of all who live there. 
Now, overall, to paraphrase the purpose, it was to be a community of the future, designed to stimulate American corporations to come up with new ideas for urban living. During the promotional video, Walt had this to say, Epcot will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are emerging from the forefront of American industry. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed. It will always be showcasing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. But there's a lot more to this story. In the early 1960s, Walt Disney was a huge success in the entertainment industry, as well as having a family with many grandchildren. In watching the grandchildren grow up, Walt began to worry about the world of the future they would inhabit. He began to notice the modern cities were hectic, disorganized, dirty, and riddled with crime. This was a far cry from the Disney's clean and controlled Disneyland Park in California, or his hometown in Marceline, Missouri. Walt began to realize that he and his Imagineers had learned about the buildings and space in relation to the people and the development of Disneyland, and he could put that to use in planning communities, even whole cities. Disney began to engross himself in books about city planning, such as Ebenezer Howard's uh, Garden Cities of Tomorrow, and he learned a lot about how to pull off something of this magnitude. At the same time, Walt Disney had given the East Coast a glimpse of his style of entertainment with the four pavilions Disney developed for that same 1964 World's Fair in New York. And you'll hear that specifically referred to often. That World's Fair was a pivotal moment in the history of Disneyland and in Disney World. Walt determined, based on how well-received the fair exhibitions were, that the public was ready for an East Coast Disneyland. Now, as you may recall, back in Podcast 15, I had Rick Vogelsong on, Rick is the author of Mary to the Mouse, and he was on to talk about the relationship between Disney and the state of Florida. There's some compelling information in there, but to me, one thing that stands out is this. Walt wanted to have his Florida project be a model for innovation and the like. So to make it happen, Disney had created a series of dummy corporations, and through them, Walt Disney purchased about 27,800 acres of land that would actually be Florida swampland, and that's about twice the size of the island of Manhattan located between Orlando and Kissimmee, and this land would eventually become the Walt Disney World Resort. Here in Florida, we have something special we never enjoyed at Disneyland, the blessing of size. There's enough land to hold all the ideas and plans we can possibly imagine. And that's Walt Disney referring to the fact that he had little control over the surrounding area of Disneyland. Now, after purchasing all of this land, Disney petitioned the state of Florida legislature to give Walt Disney Productions municipal jurisdiction over the land they had acquired. This was to make sure that Walt Disney could have full control over every part of the property, even how the buildings were constructed. Walt was planning new ideas in urban living and didn't want government to interfere with him. So this was the, the beginning of the Reedy Creek Improvement District that started off the whole concept of building the infrastructure for Disney World. It was going well for Disney, but there was a catch. Something on the, on the scale would certainly cost money, and he needed to get the state's approval on this petition to be able to build it. And the only solution to both of these problems was to build a theme park. Even if Walt never wanted to duplicate his success at Disneyland, this was going to be a requirement. So it's 1965, and the story goes that he had to delay his dreams because the state of Florida and the board of directors for the Disney company would not allow construction to begin until Walt Disney World's theme park was complete. But unfortunately, Walt passed away before it was completed, and it was up to the company to decide on the next direction. There was a lot of conversation, and no one knew quite what to make of Walt's vision. Was it a technology center, or an international community, or something else? Or maybe both? 
It's not really clear, and that's where the question comes in. So Disney's board of directors and newly appointed CEO Card Walker didn't want to be responsible for a full-fledged city, and so they refused to continue with the plans for Epcot, though they did allow Walt Disney's brother Roy to complete the Magic Kingdom. Several of the ideas which, been, which had been created for Epcot were included in the final design of Walt Disney World, including some of the unique solutions that the park employed for transportation and its water and electrical supplies. Now, Card Walker ultimately decided in the late 1970s that he wanted to revisit the Epcot theme. The board of directors still didn't like the idea, and Walker himself agreed with them that the idea wouldn't work the way Walt Disney had originally designed it. So a compromise was eventually reached, which would enable the concepts of the original plan to survive without the need for a full-fledged city to be built. Now the WED team of Imagineers were divided. Some thought that a city that showcased various countries and cultures would fulfill on Walt's desire for Epcot. Others thought it should be a model for innovation and highlight the technology and scientific advancements. Both groups were adamant about their design and created scale models to represent their vision that they could then show to the company's leadership. And it was somewhere along the way that someone had this idea, hey, why not push these two things together? And so they did, and the idea for Epcot as we know today, that wasn't exactly what Walt had in mind, was born. Now this idea did emulate Walt's ideas, but it wasn't a city, but rather closer to the World's Fair. Epcot, somewhat true to Walt Disney's vision, revolves around the technology and the future of the future world area, and the world showcases an embellished version of the downtown shopping area, but without the enclosures. The new design would become known as the Epcot Center, and that's capital letters in this case, referring to the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, and would showcase the innovative ideas that Disney had prized before his death in a manner that was similar to the presentations at the World's Fair. Epcot Center did open in 1982 with a short speech by Walker paying tribute to both Walt Disney's innovative ideal for Epcot and the wonder that Disney had hoped that Epcot would present to the world. Keeping with the radial design of the original Disney plan, the centerpiece of Epcot Center was the giant sphere that became known as Spaceship Earth. So that's kind of the history of Epcot and how it came to be. Now I wanted to take a look at the history of Progress City or the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Now, the video that we've seen was recorded on October 27, 1966. That's about two months before Walt's death. Walt Disney made a 25-minute film about his plans for the Florida Project uh, that he had dubbed Disney World in the film. Walt himself explains briefly how the Florida property will be utilized and how Epcot concepts will work with the other aspects of Disney World. Disney made this film primarily to persuade and, and encourage American industry and various corporations to opt in and help Walt Disney Productions in the creation and running of Epcot. Disney also encouraged the industrial companies to come up with their best ideas and technology so those ideas could be continuously demonstrated in the city. With the help of concept art and limited animation, Disney showed what the city would look like and how it would work. However, he reminded the viewing audience that sketches and paintings are only a starting point in the conceptualization of Epcot. Everything in this room will change time and time again as we move forward but the basic philosophy of what we're planning for Disney World is going to remain very much as it is right now. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed. But the most exciting, the far the most important part of our Florida project, in fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. It will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future, where people actually live a life they can't find anywhere else in the world. 
Now, the film itself you can find on YouTube, and watching it today raises questions with me, but it's a really intriguing look into the man and what he had in mind. Now, the master plan that he had. He devised a way to make full use out of the Florida property, with Epcot as its central location. All guests would enter and leave Disney World in the same general area. Arriving by car or the Walt Disney World Airport in the southern part of the property, guests would be shuttled by monorail to the Disney World Welcome Center. There, guests would be welcomed by Disney hosts and hostesses able to speak in the guests' own languages. After every aspect of their stay had been planned, guests would then reboard the monorail and go to Epcot. Before arriving at Epcot, guests would have the opportunity to visit Epcot's industrial park. This is where Disney World's core concepts would come to fruition. The park's offices and laboratories would be occupied by major American corporations who would use the facilities to develop new technology for use in the Epcot city. Guests of Disney World would be allowed to go on tours of the facilities and see how they all worked. Walt Disney hoped that this would stimulate people to return to their own communities and encourage technological growth where they lived. Now, as I mentioned previously, when Walt presented his idea to the board of directors, they were skeptical about all of it. They wanted assurances that people would come to visit the Disney World. What they wanted was a surefire hit, a Disneyland-style park. Walt initially objected to this idea, but eventually relented, and he used his park to his advantage. He put the theme park in the northmost corner of the Florida property. Disney wanted everyone to experience the rest of Disney World before getting to the theme park area. Now, the Epcot City itself, according to the concepts presented in the Epcot film, was based on a very innovative but simple design, the radial concept. Based on the concept similar to the layout of Disneyland parks, the city radiates out like a wheel from the central core. The urban density of the area would, be, would dwindle as the city fanned out. Now, the city would be connected to other points in the Disney world with a main line of transportation, the monorail. Walt Disney introduced the monorail in Disneyland in 1959, and the monorail would cut through the center of the city, connecting Epcot with the northernmost and southernmost points in Walt Disney's property. Internal transportation would be provided by a whole new Disney transportation concept, the Wedway People Mover. The People Mover is a transportation system that never stops relying on motors embedded in the track rather than in the vehicles themselves. People Mover cars would transport residents from the Metropolitan Center to the outer residential areas. The People Mover concept was first demonstrated at Disneyland and Tomorrowland in 1967. The People Mover was also installed at the Magic Kingdom in the Wedway People Mover in 1975. Because of the two modes of transportation, residents of Epcot would not need cars. If they did, it would only be used for weekend or pleasure trips. The streets for cars would be kept separate from the main pedestrian areas, and the main roads for both cars and supply trucks would travel underneath the city core, eliminating the risk of pedestrian accidents. This was also based on the concept that Walt Disney devised for Disneyland. He didn't want his guests to see behind-the-scenes activities such as supply trucks delivering goods to the city. Like the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World, all supplies are discreetly delivered via underground tunnels. The two systems, the monorail and the people mover, would come together in Epcot's transportation lobby. The transportation lobby would be located at ground level above the automobile and truck roads. From the lobby, a passenger riding the monorail from the Magic Kingdom Park to their home would disembark the monorail and transfer to the appropriate people mover station. Now at the city center, Epcot's downtown and commercial areas would have been located in the central core of the city, away from the residential areas. The entire downtown would have been completely enclosed, unaffected by the outside elements. The pedestrian will be king in this area, free from the danger of cars and other vehicles. At the center would be a 30-story cosmopolitan hotel and convention center. This building was to have been the tallest building in Epcot and could have been seen for miles like the Matterhorn bobsleds in Disneyland. 
The parking lot for the hotel guests would have been located underneath the city, right off the vehicle throughway. On the roof of the enclosed area would be a recreational area for hotel guests. The pool, tennis courts, basketball courts, shuffleboard, and other activities would have been located there. According to Imagineer Bob Gurr, Walt Disney pointed to one of the benches on the scale model of the area and declared, This is where Lily and I will sit when this thing is finished, taking everything in. Surrounding the hotel inside the enclosure would have been shops and restaurants that reflect the culture and flavor of the locations around the world. According to the concept art, these areas would have been themed to each country having the look and feel of each of the exotic locales. This concept eventually evolved into the world's showcase area of the Epcot theme park. The People Mover track would travel above these downtown shops and streets in a similar fashion as the system did in Disneyland and at Disney World. Preliminary plans indicated that people would have worked in these shops would have also lived in the city. On the rim of the city core would have been the high-density apartment housing. This is where most of Epcot's 20,000 citizens would live. Not much is discussed about the apartments themselves, although Walt Disney did state that no one in Epcot would own their own land. There would be no difference between an apartment and a home in that sense. All renting rates would be modest and competitive with the surrounding market. Also, the housing would be constructed in such a way to ensure ease of change so that new ideas and products could be used. A person returning from the hard day's work could very well come home to a kitchen with a brand new appliances in it. Now, separating the city core from the low-density residential areas would be an expanse of grass areas known as the Greenbelt. This is where the city services would be located, establishments such as parks and playgrounds, community centers, and churches would be located here as well. And then beyond the Greenbelt was the low-density, single-family house neighborhoods. These areas would have resembled the petals on a flower with the houses located on the rim of each petal, and inside the petals was a vast green area. The area would have the paths for electric carts, light recreation areas for adults, and play areas for children. The people mover station for each area would have also been located in the green area. The resident can simply walk to a station from their home and on to work. So residents wouldn't really need to have a car to get around. Like the apartments, the houses would be built to be easily changed. Since no one in Epcot would own their own land, there wouldn't be a need for municipal voting rights, bond issues, and things of that nature. Walt Disney wanted to exercise his control only to be able to change technology in the homes easily. According to the film, all adults living in Epcot would be employed, thereby preventing the formation of slums and ghettos. There would be no retirees. Everyone would have been required to have a job. Residents would have been employed at either the Magic Kingdom theme park, the city's central core shopping areas, the hotel or convention center, the airport, the welcome center, or the industrial park. As the film states, everyone living at Epcot will have the responsibility to maintain this living blueprint of the future. So even when Walt was dying of lung cancer, his brother Roy O. Disney stated that Walt was still planning the city in the hospital. Walt was using the ceiling to imagine his city and planning excitedly as he lay in his hospital bed. Now at the time, Florida Governor Claude R. Kirk Jr. signed Chapter 67-764 into law on May 12, 1967, establishing the Reedy Creek Improvement District. However, Disney directors eventually decided that it was too risky to venture into city now that their biggest advocate was gone. But Roy persisted and took the reins on the project, stepping out of retirement to do it. However, Roy could not convince the board to build Epcot, but he did pull ahead with the Magic Kingdom project. So the Walt Disney World Resort opened in October 1971 with only the Magic Kingdom and two hotels. Roy insisted that it be called Walt Disney World as a tribute to the man who had dreamed it up. Even though the city was never built, the resort 
represents some of the forward thinking and planning that embodied Walt's idea of Epcot. Because of the formation of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, Disney could find innovative solutions to the problems of transportation, building construction, supplying electrical power, and waste disposal. Imagineers, including Disney legends John Hench and Richard Irvine, devised ingenious means of waste disposal and sewer transport. The monorail, while mainly an attraction at Disneyland, was utilized as an actual transportation system taking guests some 13 miles around the resort area at Walt Disney World. Now, in the 1990s, the Walt Disney Company built an actual community on the Florida property called Celebration. It's a planned community that employs some of the ideas that Walt Disney envisioned, but on a significantly smaller scale. Unlike Epcot, which is based on modernism and futurism, There is no radial design for Celebration. Celebration is designed based on new urbanism and resembles a small American town that has all the modern conveniences without the revolutionary transportation ideas that Epcot contained. But there's another viewpoint here. When Walt Disney World opened, it opened under the guise of being the realization of Walt Disney's last and greatest dream. When Epcot Center opened, it opened under the guise of being the realization of Walt Disney's last and greatest dream. However, both of these statements, while they're grand and sentimental for the lost leader of the company, they're half-truths and really don't represent the real dreams that Walt Disney had for the land he and his friends had acquired. Epcot, the urban landscape of the future that would be the heart of the property, got pushed to the wayside. Instead, Lake Buena Vista became the host community to receive the some futuristic treatments, like a wedway, that Epcot was to receive but it never really got started. So when the time came to begin work on the existing Walt Disney World outside of the existing park and resorts, the idea again settled on the Epcot, only this time the ideology would center around evoking the themes, ideas, and purpose of the original idea. Epcot would no longer be a city, it would be a theme park. The problem here is that without Walt, the genius behind the design, it was nearly impossible to fulfill on this. Epcot at the time was the largest private construction enterprise, and one would think that the subsequent history and marketing surrounding Disney's new venture would reflect on the origins of which it came, the city that Walt envisioned. But it really didn't. Instead, the branding of Epcot Center and the extension of the concept, or even as a precursor of things still to come on the property, Epcot Center was promptly billed as the culmination of the dream and the dramatic realization of the purpose of Walt Disney World. It's a sort of revisionist history, It's wedged itself into the actual understanding of what Epcot is and what it was and why we now have a park in place instead of a city. John Hench famously said that the entire company was the living in the shadow of the Epcot City painting and that creating the park based on that idea was seemingly the only way to shirk off the massive responsibility of actually having to build it. Now, a couple of quick facts about uh, Epcot Center. The original plan never called for classic Disney characters to appear in Epcot anywhere. And in fact, Mickey Mouse was nowhere to be found for more than two years in the park. But they were willing to create new characters. Figment, of your imagination, was the first character to ever appear at Epcot. But then in 1984, Michael Eisner introduced the presence of a strolling Mickey Mouse and other Disney characters throughout the Epcot Center, wanting to capitalize on the marketability of the mouse that started it all. Now, cast members, while they know that the Epcot stood for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, they came up with their own definition of Epcot such as every person comes out tired and, for amusement, excruciating polyester costume of torture, or every paycheck comes on Thursday. you got to love cast members and their sense of humor. Now, during the 1990s, many changes took place, including the addition of Mickey Mouse's hand and a wand on Spaceship Earth, and the landmark globe that has always been the focal point of Epcot Center. 
Disney dropped the center from the name in 1993. First it was Epcot 94, then Epcot 95, and then finally to simply Epcot in 1996. But I think most would argue that it still stands as a representation of the best that humanity can strive for. The entire park is dedicated to themes and diversity and peace and futuristic settings, and contains amazing displays and technological innovations, which can leave audiences full of wonder. Well, I hope that gives you a glimpse into what Epcot is and how Epcot came to be constructed and how it kind of all came together in a way. It's really kind of a, an interesting uh, story and it's fun. It's really kind of an interesting story and to me, I find it kind of fun and fascinating to learn a little bit more about the theme park and how it came to be and what it really all means. So that's your 30th anniversary look at the place that we refer to as Epcot that's now a theme park, and I wanted to give you some context to what it was all about. Now coming up in the not-too-distant future on a couple of my podcasts, I want to continue to look at Epcot and give you some more information about how it all came together. But for now, that's going to do it. I hope you enjoyed what I presented to you, and remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for taking a ride with us on the Dave's Disney View podcast. Show notes, more information about this podcast, and about other great podcasts on the web, can be found at DisneyPodcast.net. Also, you'll find some links to Dave's iPhone applications. See and share hidden Mickeys or organize your pins when you go pin trading. Our thanks go to Craig, also known as Sound of Music. Craig produced the original music you hear in this podcast. You can find Craig's work at ReverbNation.com slash Sound A. Also, our thanks go to Doug at GeekAcres.net for his continued contributions to the show. Now, please gather your personal belongings and watch your head and step as you exit. Show number 111.